Thank you, Pastor Indy. Thank you, Dr. Yonker. And I do want to encourage everybody, uh, the October 10 Blood Drive, be awfully nice for them to realize that the Christians gathering here for Jesus on Prophecy are very committed to life. And if I had, uh, was it O negative, and I knew there was only half a day of supply, I would be giving the gift of life. I encourage you, come out and uh, share your blood. Everything will be done in a hygienic and uh, very healthy way. And then also, I tell you, that time lapse they show of doing those thousands of packages for the prisoners. Jesus said, I was in prison and you came and visited me. Most of us aren't going to be able to go to prison, although there will be a group that can go and help deliver these, but it's much smaller. But I just love watching that time lapse. God's people are on it and they love working together. Bring your kids, bring your grandkids, but sign up. It's an organized event and we need to know everybody that's coming. It'll be over at the church school, Village Church School, and man, do we have fun. And uh, boy, I tell you, to see so many people get so much done in such little time is really a wonderful, wonderful thing. So tonight, I want to progress on a journey, but uh, I am going to slightly deviate from our topics, and I will tell you why before we're all said and done, but before, before we do that, let's pray. Father... We've gathered here again tonight. We want to be blessed and we want to be a blessing. So I'm praying tonight, Lord, for both. I'm asking, Lord, that as we go through the last five presentations tonight and over the next four nights and then really, Lord, one more on Sabbath morning, I'm praying that we would take courage and hope and that we'd be prepared to give a good word in due season to those that are weary. So now, Lord, prepare our hearts and our minds. Make this message clear. Anoint my lips and my tongue, my mind, and the minds and hearts of those that I'm here studying with. And bless us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've changed my subject tonight, and I'm entitling The Sound of the Trumpet. Now, I love to listen to a good brass band. I love to hear the trumpet uh, taking us to uh, beautiful, melodious, uh, high places and, and sounding out the charge. This is a fantastic thing. Obviously, an army, you know, they have their bands. There's a reason for that. Music is very powerful. By the way, friends, every song that has Christian words is not Christian. Satan is a manipulator of all things. So I'm appealing to you to make sure that the music you're listening to has the sweetness and the harmony and the absence of the sound of the world in it. Music really matters. But tonight I want to talk with you about the sound of the trumpet. Before I go into this evening's presentation, I want to echo a warning from the Apostle Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Speaking of a lawless one who would deceive, he says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. And I want you to notice this theme with all power and signs and lying wonders. I want you to understand, when the world of humanism and empirical science as we know it comes to the end of its days of providing solutions, when Bible prophecy has come to the end of its course and it's time for a different level of spiritual encounter, we are going to see miracles which are not necessarily from God, but they are designed to deceive because we've been trained that seeing is believing. If you 
don't go away with this understanding, I feel like I've failed. If you go away with this understanding, then you know that the Bible is the test of a prophet, not his ability to form, to perform signs and wonders. But this is another moment when the Scripture is warning us. John does it in the book of Revelation. Paul does it in his books. With power and signs and lying wonders. Spiritual power. Exercise to deceive. But what I want you to see is that it was with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish because they don't love the truth. That's what the Scripture goes on to say. Now, I've been quoting this verse to you night by night, and I just want to look at it with you. John seven seventeen. Claim it. Claim it before you walk through the doors of this church. You wouldn't know but that I was a false prophet and a deceiver. But you can know because you can compare what I'm teaching with the Word and you can ask for the Spirit to guide you. But God is not out there dangling little prophetic uh, delicacies for you so that you can just be intellectually amused. No, God is looking to reveal truth for those who want to follow truth. This is one of the reasons they resented and resisted Jesus. He was the light of the world, but they loved darkness rather than light. So they couldn't see him. Now, I find that almost unfathomable, that Jesus, who is the light, could come into the world. It's not hard to see light when you've been in darkness, unless you keep your eyes closed and turn away because it's too painful. And of course, that's part of the phenomena. When you're in a dark spot, only so much light is appreciable. But tonight, friends, I hope you're on a journey of learning for wherever the Holy Spirit wants to convict you. But if anybody's willing to do His will, there's the condition. He will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, that was Jesus speaking, but in effect, He said, test me. And we're back to that inner witness that the beloved gospel writer John, although he writes it in his epistle, but he writes it there in 1 John chapter 5. You can check it out. But he talks about the inner witness. When John Wesley's father was dying, the great founder of Methodism, he was at his father's bedside, and his father said to John, he said, John, remember the testimony of the inner witness. And before we're done here tonight, I'm going to remind you that it is the gift of prophecy that reveals the secrets of the heart and convicts someone. To go against that conviction is dangerous. God knows when He sent conviction. He knows when it's been resisted. And someday those will be part of the record. A sad part of the record. So tonight, friends, one of the messages I want to get across and what I'm saying and doing up here is don't be afraid. Jesus will never lead you anywhere that you don't want to go if you could see the end from the beginning, but you can't. So we have to walk by faith, not by sight, right? I was having a visit with somebody the other day about something we needed to do. And uh, it was something that we need to do as a church. But you know, God always keeps us right there on the edge of needing to walk by faith. And I said, you know, we need to do it. We don't really have quite the resources we need to do it. But we're probably going to have to pray our way into a certainty that we need to do it and take a step and the resources will follow. And by the way, friends, I appreciate the support you've given for this seminar. We'll take up an offering one more time this weekend. But thank you for those who were able to participate and helping care of that. Well, my slides got a little out of order, but here's the rest of the first two, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. I know some people who don't love truth. The truth is too painful. They're afraid if they embrace the truth, they're going to have to embrace some responsibility. But I want to tell you something. The pain of embracing it sure beats the nagging uncertainty insecurity of resisting it. 
So listen, you're in a love relationship with somebody and you've got that nagging voice in the back of your ear saying, you know, this is not the person. You're putting them before me. Surrender to Jesus. Yes, there'll be grief and there'll be sorrow. There's somebody in your life. You need to have a conversation with them. God's kept prompting you to do it and you kept resisting. You don't want to ruin the relationship. Listen, friends, eventually the relationship will be ruined anyway because if you're moving to the light and they're slowly moving to the darkness, eventually there's going to be great distance between you. When God prompts you to do something, the Bible says, he who knows to do right and doeth it not, to him it's sin. We're living in an age when parents are not fulfilling a prophetic role. Friends are not fulfilling a prophetic role. Nobody wants to do anything to make anybody feel bad or be the cause of a problem. James Dobson used to say, I'd rather tell the truth that hurts than heals than a falsehood that comforts and then kills. So I'm appealing to you. And my appeal to you tonight is, let the truth lead you to the high places. Trust Jesus. Now, does, does anybody know what today is? Last day. September, right? But it's a bigger thing than that. I need to tell you this morning, I woke up with what I believe, and I don't usually have this happen, but I woke up with a thought on my mind, a thought about this seminar, a thought about where God wanted me to take it. And as I was thinking about it, I, I decided I'm going to change course. I'm going to take us on a different journey tonight. And then I got into my staff meeting and I was visiting with one of the other pastors, a retired pastor. And he said, do you know what the day is? Well, no, yeah, it's Monday, September 30. That's not what he meant. He said, today is Rasha Hana. And today is the day that begins the Feast of Trumpets. And what I want you to know is that this day is the beginning of the 10 days that lead up to the Day of Atonement. And tonight, I'm going to take you on a journey. It's a journey that shows how God reveals the plan of salvation in the festivals. Now, I want to start with some review. You'll get tired of seeing these slides, but I won't get tired of showing them to you. Let's read it together. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? I want you to understand that the simplest truths can be explained even if you can't prove them. And so tonight... I hope you come away with a little more understanding of how God has been revealing the plan to save man, not only in the sanctuary, but also in the festivals. I've showed you this slide many times. Three parts to the sanctuary. This is God's plan for the redemption of man and the clearing of his own name after having been accused by Satan. You have the outer court where there was a sacrifice. The holy place right here where there was a relationship opened up by way of the priest and the blood, a perfect sacrifice and a mediator. That was your connection to the God who sat enshrined in the most holy place. On the mercy seat, underneath was the Ark of the Covenant, wood structure covered in gold, Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, 
and some manna. God's perfect sustenance, a statement of where authority lies because Moses and Aaron were questioned, and also a statement of what God's government is based on. God's throne is based on and established on His Word. So I want this thoroughly in your mind. Now, this represents sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This represents mediation. Jesus becomes the bridge from our broken humanity to our restored estate as citizens of heaven. And Jesus is the judge, which means He can pronounce us not only forgiven, but restored. Now, I do want to say a few things, and I'm going to highlight them. I've been referring to this phase of the judgment as vindication, and indeed it is God's desire to vindicate us. But the one thing God will not do is call wrong right. So these ten days that mark the, day, the Feast of Trumpets, which lead up to the Day of Atonement, today, in the Hebrew economy, is the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. Now, that moment was a trumpet call to all of Israel to a 10-day reflective period about their lives. It was a call to repentance. That call to repentance was to be an honest examination. It was to be a sensitivity to the Spirit and the teaching of the priest from the Word of God as if my life was completely surrendered to Jesus. And as we live in the... As we are living, that was a symbolic experience, but we're living in the real Feast of Trumpets now because we are anticipating God's final acts in the most holy place. Jesus does these three roles. He dies for us. He creates a connection that has power to transform our lives. And eventually, as we have a full surrender to Him and we're honest with ourselves and He can be Lord, everybody wants Savior. Everybody wants Savior. Not so many want Lord. He taps you on the shoulder and he says, I'd like for you to stop doing that. And we want to say, that wasn't God. It's kind of like that lady who quit eating donuts. She made a vow. She wouldn't eat any more donuts. She drove by the donut shop every day. And she wasn't going to eat any more donuts. But as she got closer, she said, Lord, if there's an open spot in front of the donut shop, I'll stop. And I'll take it as a sign from you. If there's no open spot, when I go by the donut shop, I won't stop. Of course, she went by the donut shop. And what do you think happened? No open spot. But she drove around the block three or four times and eventually there was one. This is the human heart, isn't it? We laugh because we can relate. Can Jesus be Lord of my life? Jesus said the way is broad that leads to destruction and many find that one. He says narrow is the way and few are those who find the path to eternal life. When Jesus forgives my sins, this is an absolute gift. The price is paid. I don't have to die. But it's more than a gift where blood falls on the record and covers up the writing. This is now a type of empowerment to follow Him and walk as He walked. This is an empowerment to be like Him. And I want to tell you, we need His power to put our human nature down. We don't have it. But I'll tell you what, we have to cooperate. Paul didn't tell us to put on the full armor of God so that we could just stand there. We fight in the, he said, resist the devil. And it's not just resistance for the kingdom, it's resistance for our own soul's salvation. We cooperate with Jesus after we've received salvation to go on to transformation. Now listen, how do you think Michael Jackson got so good shooting the basketball? I know I'm dating myself. I didn't say LeBron James, did I? How do you think Michael Jackson, I mean my, Michael Jordan, sorry. 
Michael Jackson might not have been so good at it, but Michael Jordan was. That's dating me too. How do you think that Michael Jordan's got so good on the court? Yeah, he shot a lot of basketballs. And he had some instruction and some coaching. And you know what? The more he did it, what happened? The better he got because doing is becoming. Listen, I had somebody say today as we were talking about this subject, uh, this current generation says, yeah, but God knows my heart. That's the problem. (laughs) The human heart is deceitfully wicked beyond all understanding. You don't know it, but God knows it. And what God is going to judge you by is not your heart. He's going to judge you by your actions. Listen, friends, judging us is not going to be hard because what the heart believes is what the life acts out. So when we come through this phase of ministry, Jesus has not only forgiven our sins, but he's opened up a door to the most omnipotent power source in all of the world. And Paul will write about the resurrection power is the power we have to overcome. So Jesus is not going to accept excuses. It's not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but it's what has God architected for my day to day? How am I going to live today? Where am I going with Jesus today? And you know what? Jesus will stretch you a little bit, probably fairly often. So when we look at the lamb, we see Jesus. When we look at the priest, we see Jesus. When we look at the day of atonement and the cleansing and the vindication of God and his people, we see Jesus. Every phase of this is Jesus. There's deliverance, there's power, and there's restoration. Now, I want to go on a journey with you and show you how these things line up with both history and future prophecy. At the altar of of sacrifice, we see the cross. This is what happened. Jesus came And it was the cross where he was sacrificed. He wasn't sacrificed inside Jerusalem. He was sacrificed outside. When we come to the most holy place, Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. He is on earth for a period of 40 days. And then he tells them, you wait. There's now 10 days. And during those 10 days, they are praying together in the upper room. They are headed towards Pentecost. And as a function of the connection, when Jesus is coronated in heaven as our high priest in heaven, not just in symbolism and teaching on earth, there is power released to the new church and the new family of God. And you see the early church bursting out of its seams because the connection between heaven and earth has been bridged by Christ. And he's now there making intercession. And what he told them before he left is, I'll send you the best gift you could ever be sent. It will be the Holy Spirit. And when we come down to the final phase, the last acts, before they are finished, we see in the book of Revelation an appeal to the earth. And I'm going to look at this with you a little bit. Three angels declaring that something is going on before everything's done here. Now, we're not in heaven. The final act of judgment and vindication has not happened yet. But these three angels are to be trumpeting and echoing the invitations of mercy. God always sends a messenger and a message to prepare people for major worldwide salvation events which are going to affect their eternal destiny. Here's the message. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying, fear God and give glory to him for what has come. 
the hour of His judgment. Now I'm here to tell you, what happened at the cross is the absolute anchor point of our hope. But when Jesus goes to heaven and becomes our mediator, He takes the merits of a perfect life and a perfect sacrifice, and He goes before a perfect Father. And now, not based on faith that God could actually fix this thing and solve this thing, but based on the reality that Jesus has defeated Satan at the cross, and He has made a way for humanity to encounter victory and hope and power, He's now in the presence of His Father. But before Jesus finishes a work of mediation which will come to an end. This is the message. God will not allow this little globe to spin out of complete control. Before it's done, before the fruits of sin can destroy life on planet earth, Jesus will transition into a new role in which He will communicate to His angels that these individuals who have received Me are actually transformed and being transformed. And that work in the most holy place precedes Jesus coming with His reward. That's what the Scripture says. He comes with His reward. That's because the judgment for those that are saved, the vindication for those who have received Jesus not only as Savior but Lord, is done. So, this final judgment hour message is what those angels are proclaiming. It's an end time message. It is the hour of judgment. Now, I want to talk to you tonight about the dynamics of what's happening here. My record is cleansed at the cross, but some people stop there. Justification is their message. And by the way, friends, I don't want anybody to get the up on me about how wonderful it is that my record's cleansed. There are things that I've done that I don't want anybody to know. My record's cleansed in heaven. And by God's grace, nobody will ever look at it. But it's not just a cleansing of the record. God restores a relationship. It's not enough that I have a record cleansed. My relationship with God is where the transformation of my life takes place. To know Him is to love Him. To behold Him is to become changed. That relationship is what we call sanctification. The presence of Christ in my life, the love, the sanctifying love of Jesus in my heart actually can retool the appetites of my mind. Peter will say, through the exceeding great and precious promises, I can become a partaker of a divine nature, the divine nature, the nature of Jesus. When we don't have that relationship, we can proclaim that my record was cleansed all we want. But there is a transformational power. If you could take people from dead to life, whether it's Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son, or yourself. Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and the power to take it up. When you've got that kind of power, it's certainly enough power to reconfigure, actually to rebirth the mind and heart of man. That relationship is where that happens. When you're too busy to be in that relationship, friends, the devil's just, he's got the carrot out in front of you. Too much to do today, don't you? You don't want to be with Jesus. Too much money to earn. You don't want to be with Jesus. Oh, you like being with her, don't you? That's more fun than being with Jesus. And that television show and that website, or you're afraid of that, aren't you? You don't want to slow down and think. It'll cause too much pain. In reality, being with Jesus to think on your life is the ultimate counselor and healing relationship. The relationship is what was broken at Eden. The relationship is what is restored by the cross. But when we don't follow the Ten Commandments, one of which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, which is an invitation to relationship. And when our days are too full 
to know God. What are we saying? Life on planet earth is enough. How sad. And when we come down to the last act, all doubt is removed. The final vindicating act of God. Angels, I want you to look at this. This gal, this lady, this daughter of mine, look at her life. Look it over. Do you have any questions? I know she's safe to bring back here. The angels look it over. The one that was with her all her life, protecting her. And he says, yeah, Jesus, I watched her changing as you came more and more into the lordship of her life. This is the storyline. You want to know about God? Go to His sanctuary. You want to understand the plan of salvation? Go to His sanctuary. Take some time to think about it. God's way is there. Now I want to talk with you about the festivals. But before I do, what did I say? I said this is Rosh Hashanah. This is the first day of the Feast of Trumpets. They would come to Jerusalem. They would be there. And they would expect to hear echoing from Jerusalem and then all across the countryside the sound of the trumpet. Ram's horn. I had to find a trumpet player who could do that. (laughs) And it's a lot harder than playing a trumpet. Thank you, Grant. That was the announcement that it was time to start preparing for the most solemn feast there was. Now that's towards the end. I want to start with the Jewish religious calendar. It starts with Passover, which is the seventh month on the 14th day. Why does it start with Passover? Put your learning caps on. Why does it start with Passover? Don't yell it out. Just start thinking. Why Passover? Because Jesus liberated His people with His own blood on the Passover. Sounds an awful lot like the cross, does it not? This is where the plan of salvation began. It's also enshrined in the festivals of ancient Israel. On the 14th day of the seventh month, the blood was put on the doorpost. But Jesus transitioned the meaning of the Passover to a new covenant experience through His blood and His life in the unleavened bread. No more lambs were going to be slain. And the interesting thing is that Dr. Luke tells us, and I believe Luke chapter 22, that Jesus says, I won't drink this cup until I drink it with you in the new kingdom. The symbolism, what we call the typology, the ability to see greater truth in an event is clearly here. Jesus takes the Passover, becomes the Passover lamb, and then assures us there will be an even greater deliverance, not greater, but there will be an ultimate deliverance from this dark night of woe in this wicked world. When we get to heaven, John the Revelator says one of the first things that's going to happen is that we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the who? The lamb. And he's going to serve us. Finally, we are going to be sitting down and celebrating, but it starts with Passover. Now, They left Egypt so fast that their bread didn't get time to rise. And so from the very next day forward is an experience of examining their lives, this leaven representing sin, and they were to get all the leaven out of their house to remind them of God's rapid deliverance and of a call to a pure life. Now, Jesus is the Passover lamb, and Jesus lived a life without leaven. When Jesus died, though... He laid in the tomb from Friday afternoon till Sunday morning, and that leads us up to the third, which is first fruits. Now, in Old Testament Israel, 
This feast was tied to the barley harvest. The feasts in the spring were about grains. The feasts in the fall were about fruit. And they would actually move this feast if they needed to because you had to have some barley or a grain to be a part of the offering of the first fruits. They would do a wave sheaf. They would wave the first fruits. When Jesus was resurrected, other people were resurrected. Well, on that weekend when he died, people were resurrected. And when he went back to heaven, he took people he had rescued from the grave as first fruits to heaven. Some people think that those 24 elders in the book of Revelation are represented by this group. What I want you to see is Jesus' life is progressing through the festivals in the same way that Jesus' ministry progresses through the sanctuary. So these are the spring festivals. And when you go 40 days, 50 days actually, Jesus was here for 40, and then there were 10 more, you go 50 days past the Passover, and you end up at Pentecost. Now look what happens. Jesus lingers on the earth for 40 days. He's teaching, he's edifying, he's comforting, he's exhorting. He leaves, but he's told them, don't you leave Jerusalem. He's told them to do two things. One thing he told them was to wait. The other thing he told them was to go, but don't go until you wait. And when Jesus goes to heaven and his ministry in the holy place is inaugurated, they've been seeking, God's wanting to give, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and there's a breaking out of power in the early church, and you just can't shut them down. You know, listening to Pastor Michael and Pastor Andy talk up here, it is pretty amazing. They told us this morning of one person who had 3,000 friends and wanted to invite them all to watch these, these messages. You know, if you had to do that in the day of Pentecost, you'd have to run around to 700 houses or 300 houses, depending on how big the family was. But I want to tell you, the gospel went everywhere in the first century with old-fashioned technology, like I've got something to tell you. And by the way, friends, that's probably how it's going to finish. People moving from house to house with their faces lighted up with the gospel, they're going to be, it's going to be seen that in a world that's full of fear and anger, these people are full of light and hope. This is Jesus' ministry for redeeming planet Earth moving through the festivals. Let's go to the fall festivals. When we come to the fall festivals, we come to the Feast of Trumpets. That sound you heard today, echoing perhaps in synagogues, many places on this planet. That was a call. It was an attention getter. It was God's appeal. Begin to examine yourself. Because at the end of these 10 days, we're going to come up to the most solemn assembly there is. The only feast where the Israelites fast. Friends, don't fast on the Sabbath. Orthodox Jews, they don't fast on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of celebration, but there was one Sabbath, whether it fell on the seventh-day Sabbath or on one of the festival Sabbaths. Actually, when it fell on the seventh-day Sabbath, I'm not sure if they fasted. But this was a fast day. Every other Sabbath is not. You want to fast? Go ahead and fast. When the Sabbath was changed from Sabbath to Sunday, they used fasting to destroy the joy of the day. But on the tenth day of the Feast of Trumpets, the high priest would put on a simple garment. He would slay one of the goats. He would take that blood which represented Jesus. 
The whole nation was fasting and praying that indeed rebellion was not in their ranks and that the priest, the high priest, as their representative, should not be smitten on behalf of their spiritual irresponsibility. He would go in there with blood, and all year long, God had been saying, bring the sin problem to me. But as these feasts represent a call to not only meeting my spiritual needs, but telling the world that their spiritual needs have been met, God has a people at the end of time that are blowing, sorry, are blowing the gospel trumpet. Let's put it up here. This gospel trumpet is being blown. These three angels are flying around the world. They're not literal angels, but they're people. The word angel in Greek means messenger. And in the experience of God working out the redemption of the entire race, not just those lucky few who know about it, those blessed few, God has a people who are determined to make sure the trumpet blows when we're living in the Day of Atonement. The question I have for you tonight is, how committed are you to making sure the gospel trumpet gives a mighty sound and everybody knows there's a balm in Gilead. There's a healing for our sin-sick souls. Too many of people that espouse my faith are quite comfort for silence to reign on the face of the earth. This meeting here tonight is part of that gospel trumpet sound. On the Day of Atonement when the priest came out from the high, most holy place, it had been cleansed. The goat had died. That goat representing Jesus, who knew no sin but became sin for us. He paid the price for you, for me, for the entire world. When he finally comes out, and he's carrying the sins of the world symbolically on him now, just like Jesus did for us. He goes to that goat that's called Azazel. Sometimes it's called the scapegoat, although scapegoat has the idea of not being responsible. In this case, this goat that he's about to put his hands on represents where the sin problem came from and rightly where it ought to be labeled in the end. And when he lays his hands on that goat and he declares the sins that God had paid the price for, that doesn't get the devil off the hot seat. He's going to pay the price. He's going not to have anything to do with salvation, but he is going to be held responsible for his rebellion. That goat is led by someone out into the wilderness, and what we see in all this imagery is what the world looks like after Jesus comes. Yes, indeed, the trumpet sounds. Yes, indeed, God pronounces judgment. And when it's all said and done, this world is a wreck. And while it's a wreck, Satan's there. And just before Satan is executed, after a thousand years of reflecting on what he's done... Jesus comes back again. And finally, when the new Jerusalem comes down on planet earth, finally, when the fire has ceased, we speak and celebrate the peace. But there is one festival that's left that I haven't described yet. The most joyous festival in all of the Hebrew economy. Celebrated five days. Now, everybody did not have to come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. There were three feasts you had to come for. If you were a full-fledged adult male, if you had gone through your bar mitzvah and you were considered a man in Israel, you needed to be there for Passover. You needed to be there for Pentecost. You did not need to be there for the Day of Atonement, although the nation celebrated it, or I should say went through this solemn feast. But you were to be there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And when I showed you that slide on Sabbath of that progression of people moving through the stars, moving through the cosmos, you see this Feast of Tabernacles 
is a feast that represents the final joy of having made it to the promised land. I want you to see in the festivals the progression of the plan of salvation. I want you to see in the tabernacle the plan of salvation. And I want you to understand where we are. Now these festivals are not obligatory on us, but just because they're not obligatory doesn't mean they don't have value to us. I think it'd be a wonderful thing. I heard somebody on the radio today talk about a media fast, a fast from their phone. I wonder if 10 days every fall, when we thought about the fact that we were living in the Day of Atonement, if we celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, if it might not do something to put a greater intentionality and a sharper spiritual focus in our lives. I'm convinced it would. And I'm wondering if every fall, when the Jews are celebrating the Day of Atonement, if we had a day of fasting and we said, Lord, is my heart proud and lifted up against you? Am I humble enough to hear you talk? Have I been resisting you in something? Have I been failing to do what you've asked? This 10 days was a day, were days of examining one's heart. And when one was afflicting one's soul on the Day of Atonement, it was in effect to say, God, search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. It wasn't a day of insecurity. No, the lamb had been slain and the goat had been slain. The daily sacrifice in the, tab- in the tabernacle carried on on the Day of Atonement. Did people make mistakes? Did people sin at times on the Day of Atonement? Indeed they did. But it was not typically of intention. And yet nonetheless, there was a mediating sacrifice on that day that was different than the sacrifice that cleansed the temple itself. Nobody was to be with any doubt about the great love of God. And I wouldn't want anybody here tonight to be without a doubt, be living with doubt in regards to the great love of God, unless one is not stopping long enough to think about who is God in my life? And am I fully surrendered to His leading? Can He have something to say about how many commitments I take? Can He have something to say about how primary my commitment to the church is? the one object of His supreme regard? Is my absence giving the trumpet a less certain sound, a lesser volume? You see, friends, as we move through the feast and as we move through the tabernacle, we see the hand of God. But today, friends, we are living while the trumpets are supposed to be blowing and we are supposed to be blowing them. Rosh Hashanah, wonderful invitation to stop and reflect on your life. Now, I'm going to move through this a little bit quickly here. I've talked about this before. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? That's what I'm doing tonight. Oh, I'm telling you what I believe through biblical symbolism and biblical teaching the future holds. Really, tonight, I've just been explaining to you symbols and types. There'll be plenty of preachers who don't walk through the pearly gates. Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? I want to tell you, the devil's right there to co-opt your religious interest, especially if it gets your mind off thinking about your soul, thinking about your character, thinking about your journey with Jesus. Be busy for Jesus, but just don't be slow enough and quiet enough to be there in the quiet with Him. And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, all of you who practice lawlessness. 
The Day of Atonement is solemn because it is the last offer of salvation. It's the end of the line. When that angel pronounces in Revelation 21, He who is holy, let him be holy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. That's it. It's over. The value of the cross is not completely done, but its ability to take a human and transform him is finished. No wonder the trumpets blow for ten days. No wonder God has such an interest and these three angels are described as having a megaphone. Now I want to come back to the gift of prophecy. I started my first night with this and I'm bringing you back to it. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Who's he writing to? Is he writing to the preachers? Well, then them too. (laughs) He's writing to every member of the Corinthian church. Get that clear before I go any farther. Every member... But desire especially that you may prophesy. Well, let's keep going. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. All of those. Pastors, parents, teachers, policemen, probation officers, who's ever a person of authority, seniors in our midst. Nobody's supposed to abandon this gift. Everybody's supposed to seek it. Let's keep going. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, notice the words whole church, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? I mean, Paul is not excited about this church. They have so many problems. And one of them is is that their worship services are chaotic. And he'll say later in this chapter, in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. That's why if somebody's going to speak in a tongue, make sure somebody can interpret it or it doesn't edify anybody. But if all prophecy, prophesy. Notice the word right here, friends. In the early church service, there were moments like this when Pastor Paul was preaching or Apollos or some of the others. But I want to tell you, there were many moments when in a single house, a dozen or so people would gather And everybody had something to share out of their personal experience about how God was working with them, correcting them, encouraging them. And it was a group journey of pastoral care. And I'm quite confident before Jesus comes back, I'll be in jail or out of a job, and it'll be up all of you to make sure you're exercising the gift of prophecy. And if you don't know how to exercise it, think back to your grandma or your grandpa. Spiritual people, I hope, if they were. Most of them knew how to exercise the gift of prophecy. They had their own walk with God. I have people telling me about contractors who have their Bible on the dash of their truck. When they have a few extra moments, they read it. They actually do great work. Their lives represent Christ. They're actually giving the trumpet a certain sound. But they have determined that they are to fulfill the role God gave them to do. Listen, church, the gift of prophecy is for all of us. And when parents quit correcting children, and when pastors quit talking about sin... And when teachers are afraid to enforce the rules, we've got people abandoning the gift of prophecy. No wonder things are such a mess. People must have this gift. That's why Paul said, this is the one gift you've got to get. When he's convicted by all, he's called to an account by all. The secrets of his heart speaking to him, they're revealed. And so falling down on his face, he'll worship God and he'll report that God is among you. Yes, when he hears you speaking out of the depths of your walk with God and the application of the Bible in your life. The gift of prophecy isn't for some little girl who was 
in the third grade when she got hit in the face with a rock. And it's not for the pastor alone. Although I do have a book on my shelf about Billy Graham that says, A Prophet with Honor. Yes, this prophetic gift is for a whole group of people. But I'm afraid we've come to the place where few and fewer are exercising it and fewer and fewer are reading about the prophets. Should we not expect a growing cultural dysfunction? Brethren, now I'm back to the beginning of the chapter. If I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? He's back to saying, look, let up on the tongues. I want some knowledge, some prophesying, or some teaching. But let's get to the verses I'm after. Even things without life, whether a flute or a harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is played? For the trumpet, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? I want to tell you there are kids and spouses and co-workers who are marching to destruction because everybody's afraid to fulfill the gift of prophecy. Now listen, don't you run out there and be somebody's conscience. And don't you run out there and club somebody. But I'm afraid we've gone so far from that straw man of conservative religious groups in generations gone by that people are walking willy-nilly into destruction and it appears everybody's okay with it. There are stories I could tell. We're going to celebrate, in effect, something that's wrong in our silence. No wonder God's church is suffering. Paul said if there's a gift you need, it's the gift of prophecy to edify, which is to teach and instruct, to exhort, which is to point back to the truth, and to console, especially when someone has recognized truth and not brought a resistant stiff neck to the experience. The trumpet must make a certain sound. The problem is, in most churches, if someone has the kindness and good discretion to, you know what the Bible says, that a word spoken, a a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. Some people don't have much wisdom and their words do create tons of trauma. But there are so many people I know that are kind, discreet Christians. And if they would kindly engage somebody who they think is wandering off the path of life only to be eternally destroyed, they might turn a sinner back. And according to the book of James, it would be a great act. Don't be afraid, friends. My dear mama, who might be watching right now, was a good prophet. And I got my mouth washed out with soap. And I learned not to talk like that. And I stood with my nose against the wall. And I learned to keep from taking this big old hand and balling it up into a knuckle and walloping my sister. And she told me to clean my room before I went to school and I didn't. And she called me home from a public school. And then she made me go back. I learned she meant what she said. She fulfilled a better prophetic role as I've watched for the last 30 years, than many parents who I think are afraid that they won't look grace-based enough. Listen, my mama had grace. She had the grace that empowered me to live above my natural self. And by God's grace today, I'm doing it. Don't be afraid. What you ought to be afraid of is that you'd focus everything on you. They might not like me. They might go say something bad about me. This was the hard part of a prophet's job, and it remains so. Edwin Friedman in his book, A Failure of Nerves, says, from the pastors to the, from the parents to the presidents, it's the one who has the emotional stamina to endure what doing lead, what leadership requires. That's the real leader. How do you get it? Go to Jesus. 
Follow his example. Be humble. Don't rush out to fix something. Just look for God's providential leading. But if he says, I want the trumpet to make a certain sound so they at least know right from wrong, you can't force them to choose, but they should at least know right from wrong. And what's at the end of the other side of this chasm? The bridge is out. Don't fail to do it. Now, let's just look real quick before I go on. If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for what? Battle. Let's go to the next verse in Revelation. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make what? War. I'm here to tell you, he's happy for us to sit on the sidelines and drink the world's version of veggie beer or whatever you drink. I surely hope you don't drink the real stuff. He's happy for us to feed ourselves, get fat and sassy, and, and, and have all these tropes, all these wonderful narratives about how much God loves us. All the while knowing that God's love is a love that actually nicely tells the truth and keeps people from just fixating on themselves in a life of pleasure. There's a war coming. The devil's won with plasma TVs and LED TVs. He's, he's picked so many people off. They're addicted to video games, the internet, pornography, alcohol, cigarettes, gossip, money. There will be a remnant, though, and they've not rejected the rebuke of a prophetic voice, whether it's from a parent or a teacher or a pastor or an administrator or a boss or a friend. Now, I'm not unleashing all of you to go out and become somebody else's conscience. But if you do share prophetically and it involves a little bit of exhortation, don't be surprised if somebody says to you, you're guilting me. I'll just give you a little experience. Guilt is a spiritual symptom of a spiritual disease. If someone feels guilt, they need to find out if it's true guilt or false guilt. Some of you carry around a lot of false guilt. The devil's the accuser. And he's got you looking at yourself so much, you know you just can't go to heaven. One prophet that I like to refer to as the spirit of prophecy says, get your eyes off yourself and start looking at Jesus and you'll get a little hope back in everything. And then tell him, the accuser, that Jesus Christ has already paid the price You've given your life to Him. Your name's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life and you're planning to see Jesus face to face. But there is a war. Right now it's a war of... I want to tell you, the book of Revelation, for as much as I had to say about conspiracies last night, the book of Revelation unmasks the final conspiracy. Who's he after? He's after those who keep the commandments. They have a lifestyle of obedience. They've surrendered their pride. But this is what he really hates. He really hates this. Because when this happens, the Holy Spirit convicts people and they turn to the cross and they're saved. That is the spirit of prophecy. Is it in your home? Is it in your heart? Can you console Prophets know how to console. Can you teach in righteousness? That's edification. Are you willing? This is what Paul said everybody should be after. 
Our lives are to be submitted to God. People want to call lives like Daniel's legalist. So you mean you actually let your church talk to you about what you eat? Listen. The church is how I met Jesus. <laughs> yes, my church talks about how I eat. Just turns out that my denomination, which is this one, the people live seven or ten years longer than everybody else. I'm not down on that, are you? You mean you let your church talk to you about how you dress? The Bible says the older women should talk with the younger women about dressing modestly. And by the way, the younger men might need to be talked to by the older men about dressing modestly too. You mean you let your church talk to you about what you watch? Yeah, they quote the Bible. It says, whatsoever things are pure and true and beautiful and noble and of good report. And it just turns out I can't spend a lot of time on my phone with that list. Because I know that by beholding, I become changed. You mean your church talks with you about how to spend your money? Oh yeah, they do. It's all God's. That's what they teach. And he needs more and more of it as we get closer to the end because the trumpet's got to keep sounding. Whether it's a radio station or a TV station or an evangelist or a teacher or a preacher or a student missionary. Oh yeah. Whether I'm eating or drinking or whatever I'm doing, I've got something on my mind. The trumpets are sounding. The day of atonement is going to come to an end. And everybody needs to know who Jesus is because he's still the lily of the valley. He's still the morning star. He's still as fragrant as he ever was. And there's so many lies going on around there that the people who understand this have got to make sure the word gets out. Can you say amen? amen. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, your pocketbooks, your schedule books, everything as a living sacrifice. You see, friends, we're living in the hour of judgment. That's why there's a thousand and one things to do. One of the reasons there's such a gangbuster economy going on, appreciate the work of those who can take some credit for it, but I want to tell you something. Before the ten tribes fell, there was a gangbuster economy going on in Israel. And my, my, wasn't it a wonderful distraction from stopping? I want to tell you, there's opportunities for you out there that aren't for you. Oh, they're for you with devilish design, but they aren't from God. Your being here tonight is important. I have four more messages and then one on Sabbath morning. You might not have 3,000 friends on Facebook, but you might have 300. And we might have 1,000 or 2,000 people watching. We know of one site where there was seven. It really doesn't matter in one respect except that the trumpets are to sound and they are to give a certain sound. It matters because God does nothing without revealing His secrets to His servants, the prophets. Just a little bit more. This dear Seventh-day Adventist church that I love, who brought me to a knowledge of Christ, sometimes gets people like to kick at it. Because back in 1844, there was a group of people, long before Seventh-day Adventists started, their name were Millerites. They actually had the gall, the audacity, to teach that in 1844... 
Jesus was coming back to this world. And tomorrow night I'll show you the world's biggest tent, at least in that day, that was purchased so that everybody could get in and hear. They were on the newspapers. The world was paying attention. Josiah Wolf in Europe and William Miller here and many others. But you know something? On October 23, 1844, they were the laughing stock of the world. And there are people who dare to say that Seventh-day Adventism was begun on a mistake. Well, I'm going to tell you something. They're partially right. Because what those people were teaching in 1844, those mighty spiritual giants, was that the cleansing of the sanctuary, where does that happen, friends? Which apartment? Most holy place. I've taken you through this many times. They had read Daniel 8, 13 and 14, and they read the cleansing of the sanctuary. They were good Bible students, but what they thought it meant was Jesus was going to come and the fire was going to come and it was going to be cleansed. What they didn't understand was that there was yet a feast of tabernacles to follow. There was going to be a joyful celebration on the way to heaven. And unfortunately, they had not yet learned about the fact that God was going to open up all the books during the millennium. So they got it just a little bit wrong. But I'm going to tell you something. Their math and their history was spot on. And tomorrow night, I'm going to show it to you. Oh, yeah. And what the world has never taken the time to look at is in the book of Revelation, they're told to eat the scroll, that it would be sweet in their mouth and bitter in their stomach. And it actually describes this little stumbling point. Oh, yeah. You could be a child. And you could say, Jesus died on the cross. There's the altar of sacrifice. And Jesus is mediating for me right now. He ever lives to make intercession. There's the holy place. And Jesus is going to declare someday, He who is holy, let Him be holy still. There's the work of the most holy place. I'm telling you, friends, it's not hard to see how the prophecies should end up in general. Tomorrow night, I'm going to show you in specific. But tonight, I want you to be reminded that God never lets the world go without a warning. Book of Malachi says there'll be the power of Elijah at the end. We don't have it right now, but we need to be seeking it. 120 years, Noah talked to them about what was going to happen. It's been more than 120 years since 1844. But you know what? One day the door of the ark is going to close. One day the final echo of invitation to come to Jesus is going to be done. One day... God is going to walk out of the sanctuary in heaven to come get us and the plan of salvation will no longer be able to be given away to somebody else. But until then, the trumpet needs to give a certain sound and we are to be giving it. Jesus did not go to the cross for no reason. And He's not unwilling to come, but He doesn't want anybody lost. The Lord's not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Friends, the cross sets us free. The cross opens a door for a relationship, and the cross gives us the confidence that we can face the judgment with assurance. And tonight, I want to invite you again to examine your lives and say, does Jesus have permission to reconfigure my priorities so that I collectively with my brothers and sisters in Christ who know these truths are giving the trumpet a certain sound? I'm appealing to you tonight to receive Christ with that kind of lordship, not just Savior, but Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're here tonight having seen one more evidence that the progress of heaven 
is indeed marching through time, not just in symbols and types, but in reality. And in that strange way, Lord, how you awakened me this morning, me not even knowing that this was the first day of the Feast of Trumpets. Yet you awoke me with this thought on my mind. Tonight I've shared it, Lord. May the trumpet have given a certain sound. And may everybody know where the battle's at. They all get to decide if they're running to the battle for victory or running away in self-preservation. I'm praying tonight, may we make a new commitment to Jesus, the commander of the Lord's host. And may we go forward with him to victory is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, don't fail to sign up to help us put those packages together. And God bless you. We hope to see you tomorrow night when we'll look at the longest time prophecy in the Bible. God bless you and have a good evening.